been a while since I've been up here. Uh, in fact, I've been, uh, as I was prepping, uh, I had uh, I had a lot going on this weekend already, and so I kind of prepped this last week, and I've been thinking about it for a couple weeks now. Uh, the problem with me not having been up here in a while and prepping this for a few weeks is I've have I've had a lot of time to to build on the <laughs> on the sermon, so <laughs> uh, I'm just preparing you for. I'm trying. I'll try not to. To be long, although if you know me, I, I can be long-winded when it comes to this because you know when I'm passionate about something, and um, I usually have you know a little bit to say. So uh, as we get going this morning, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter three, verses twelve through sixteen is what we'll be looking at this morning. And uh, I'll be going back and forth between, we generally read out of the ESV up here in the, in the pulpit, but um, I, I, I go between that and the NIV, if, if you are wondering. And before I get going um, on my <laughs> scripted sermon, if you will, uh, I, and bef- I was thinking as I was driving here this morning, um, we had... I had a gig up in Northwest Arkansas this weekend, and we'd stayed over at her parents, and so I was driving. I had a whole hour to think through some of this as we were driving back this morning, and um, and I don't think you know there's so much to say in, in these four verses uh, and to talk about, and I may leave some stuff out, but that's why we have our our men's and women's groups so we can talk about those things that uh, we can't quite get to or the things that brought to mind something that you wanted to say. Um, and, and um, or or ask about, but in case uh, in case I don't get to something, I want to just lay it out there exactly what we're talking about today, and we'll and, and we'll go into it in depth. But really, this this synopsis of today. Last week we talked about Christ, our treasure, right? Christ, uh, Paul longs for Christ. Every five, you can just read, and we'll read it again. You can just read as you read in his letter. It seems like every fiber of his being was just wanting Christ. Everything about him, he was, he was in love. You could just tell he was in love. He wants to know everything about Christ and to possess him and, and know him and be there with him, right? Well, today we're going to talk about maybe the, uh, what a life will look like if that is your posture. Um, it's not as, uh, I'll get going here, but it's maybe not as, as fun to talk about all the time, but um, what we're going to be talking more, mostly about is kind of that sanctification process, all right? Um, that process we grow through that is both our effort and the Spirit's effort, Okay, effect in his in his working. So it's a both and situation. And I don't know if I always explicitly say that in here, but I want you to know I, I, I'm focusing more on what you know our striving, um, with the caveat that it is the Spirit who works in us, and only by through through Christ's blood are we actually even brought to God. It's not through our striving, but if our love and affection is for Christ. If what we say is way down deep in our soul, there is a certain life trajectory that our life should be taking. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. So let's read uh, Philippians 3, 12 through 16. Follow along with me. Paul, after yearning for Christ, says, 
Not that I have obtained or already attained this, Christ, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Throughout this letter to the Philippians, Paul continually writes with two themes in mind, and of which we read again in this passage we're studying today. I'm really just kind of boiling it down to the essentials. The prize and our striving for it. Or put another way, Paul continually writes about, for the Christian, what the source of our ultimate affection, our greatest adoration, our life foundation is, Christ, and how our lives are aligned, how they look, if our ultimate affection truly is him. At the center is Christ, our ultimate joy, and in Christ, our source of strength. Um, I'm not going to go back and read it right now, but if you were on the group me message, I loved how Ricky had sent out like that immediately a week ago after his sermon saying, listen, church, remember, we had just talked about how Christ has secured this for you, but remember, there's also this process that we go through to, to strive for him, right? And I was like, well, he's leading up right up to what I'm talking about today. So let's take a brief look at, actually, like I said, Paul's been kind of talking about this up to this point in this letter. So let's take a few, uh, let's take a few, uh, a step back here and, and, and read some of those points in Philippians through the lens of Christ either being the greatest treasure or how your life should look if he is your greatest treasure. So I'm just going to be kind of picking and picking parts of this letter out. I'm starting first in, in, in first Philippians verse 6. Paul says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. There's that work, spirit working through you. Verse 9, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Going on to verse 20. Paul writes, and it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, for me, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. And he goes on to say, but I will remain here for you. If we fast forward to 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, your manner of life, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you 
that you are standing firm in one spirit and with one mind, unity, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened of anything by your opponents. Moving on to to verse 1 of chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others and have this mind among you. 12 through 16. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He goes on to say, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Let's see. Then fast forwarding to Philippians 3. We're almost there to where we are. Verse 2, he says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship God by the Spirit, sorry, by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And then... 7 through 11, where he really is winding up and getting going about how uh, he desires to be with Christ. He says, but whatever I gain, I had, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings and become like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And then that brings us to our text today. So last week, we dwelled on Christ as being our greatest treasure, our ultimate one, our greatest affection. Personally, church, I love to dwell here. And this is good. And your personal time with him in solitude, do this. All the time in your daily walk, do this. Reflect on his worthiness. Meditate on it. Reflect on how good he is and how much you desire to be with him and long for his kingdom and the peace of his people with him. This is right and good and pure and what he desires from you. And this is the why that we should always come back to. But today, we get to dwell in and reflect on how your life should be shaped 
what it should look like and what you should do if Christ is your greatest treasure, if he really is the prize. As we make our way through these verses, this snapshot of Paul's letter, we're going to talk about the why. Of course, I have to put it in three points, right? Why, the what, and the how, right? The why, the what, and the how. And as I hope you come to see that they really are just all interconnected and overlapping. In this passage, we see Paul's passionate concern for spiritual growth. And that is what we'll examine today. The question, how do we pursue Christ? Well, just above our section of verses that we're looking at today, like I've been saying, Paul holds up the worthiness of Christ and his great desire for him to obtain him. But he says, I haven't obtained him. He says, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So we're going to look at two things here of the what? The goal and the prize. The goal pursue Christ now. The prize, we pursue to be like Christ now because the prize is that we will be like Christ and also come to know him, know God, by being the, and by being the very image of him as he originally created us to be. That's the prize. The prize is two things in one thing, that we will be like Christ fully we will be the image of Christ himself and that we will come to a greater and fuller knowledge of him which will only continue to grow throughout eternity. I want you to, that's something we should reflect on. I don't know if we really grasp the gravity of the goodness of being in the image of the perfect man, God. And knowing the great and mysterious, perfect, holy, pure being through and through. The goal. Paul says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. What is it then that Paul is obtaining? Well, he says it right after and immediately before. Christ-likeness now. The knowledge of Christ now. That's the goal. The gaining of Christ now, the goal. Then, being made perfect, the prize. Bearing the very image of Christ. Wearing his righteousness. Being made perfect and knowing who he is. Reflect on what he said before, right? But I, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a lost as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. He wants to know Christ. He considers everything a loss. All of it is rubbish in comparison to knowing Christ. And then he goes on to say, so he's, you know, he's, he's reaching for it, and he says, I haven't already obtained it, church. So this is what he's striving for, is to be like Christ, to know Christ. But notice Paul, as we probably think of him, one of the greatest Christians in history, church, he doesn't think of himself as having attained perfection. He doesn't think of himself as being fully like Christ yet. Now, think of all that Paul did and had endured 
even just a glance at him. I think we looked at it a little bit last week. He wrote the majority of the New Testament scripture. He was a missionary, founding much of the church throughout the ancient world. He endured imprisonment, beatings almost to the point of death, hardship, you know, famine. He didn't eat sometimes, shipwrecks. And Paul says, I haven't obtained it. I'm not yet perfect. Then I think about my own life. If Paul has this mind, this view of himself, and he's done all of this, and I think here's the model of a super Christian, what am I doing? So we have to have this mind as ourselves. Maybe you're thinking, well, of course, I don't think I'm perfect. Andy, no one is. But having this mind is key to what Paul says in just a few sentences. So then first, we must remember and remind ourselves that we are not what we will be fully Christ-like and perfect. We have not yet attained it. But here's the flip side of that. I want you to remember this, church. Perfection, Christ-likeness, knowing him fully, while not right now, is so fully and surely ours because of what Christ has done for us that it is as if we possess it already. If you want to turn to Romans 8, chapter 8, 29 through 30 real quick. Write it down in your notes. This is what Paul says to the Romans. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image or likeness of his son. That he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. Overlooking for now the issue of predestination. Focus on the language Paul uses as he writes to the Romans of the certainty of what they will be. The certainty of us being like Christ and glorified with him is such that Paul writes about it as if it has already happened. If you are in Christ, church, you will be fully like him in his image. If you are in Christ, if you remain in Christ, you will be glorified with him. So surely, it's as, it's as if it has already happened. In 2 Corinthians, Paul, uh, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And yet, he says in Philippians, Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Right now and not yet. We haven't obtained the prize, but it is as good as ours. And, and John says in his first letter, he says, Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Here, now, purifying yourself just as he is pure. It's, you're it's so sure that you're already there. 
You see that? Right now and not yet. The goal and the prize. The prize is as good as ours. So we make it our goal to, run, to, to race to the prize. Do we see how amazing that is? If Christ is your greatest treasure, he is as good as yours. Now and always. In the future, you will completely obtain your greatest treasure fully. Your greatest longings will be fulfilled. You will know him and be fully known. You will be like him spiritually and physically. Church, reflect on this. If this truth goes down, way down deep into your bones, how will this change the way you live? Well, before we go on, let's read one last passage that's, that um, kind of puts an exclamation on, on this point. It's a long passage, so follow along with me. We're going to both, we're going to all turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Chapter 15, 35 through 58. We'll be reading out of the NIV. But someone might, may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. All flesh is not the same. Man Men have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish yet another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one thing, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another, and stars different from star and splendor. But here's his point. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit, that's Jesus. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. As it was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as it is from the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye. At the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed, sorry, yes, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, 
and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Therefore, my brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know, you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You see that, church? To strive now because the, the prize is as good as yours. Paul describes it here. We don't want to just sit back. We want to keep going. And that's what we're going to get onto here. As we move on to the next point, the how, we think about this. How then does the hope of the resurrection and a glorified body, how does that, how does becoming fully like Christ and knowing him, attaining your greatest treasure if you are in Christ, how does that motivate you to live for Christ each day? What does that do to the trajectory of your life? Okay, back in Philippians again. I press on to make it my own, says Paul. I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. The central point, sorry, the central question for this point is then, if Christ is your greatest treasure, if everything else is rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ and gaining him, if we know that because of what he did for us, And again, I want to reiterate, only because of his work and not our own. Knowing him, being like him, having him as our own, is as certain as as it is already there. And what we are to be, what are we then to be doing now, church? What does our look like now? Excuse me. What does a true Christian life look like? The question is, how are we to be living today? Well, Paul says, he says it here, I press on to make it my own. But one thing I do, he says, forgetting what lies behind, forgetting what lies behind, and straining forward, straining forward to what lies ahead. From this passage, and from other letters Paul writes, you can tell that he's a little bit of a sports fan, right? Um, or at least uh, sports was his favorite metaphor. But we all kind of think he was a bit of a sports fan. He makes references to boxing and wrestling and the Isthmian games in 1 Corinthians and in Ephesians. But his favorite athletic metaphor was that of the foot race. And I agree with him. Sports are a great metaphor for the how of Christian living. And I know many of you, maybe at least at some point in your life, have been an athlete. And if not... You've done something that has required discipline and pressure, so you'll probably be able to identify with this metaphor a bit. So, take this journey with me. Pick any sport here and think through it. I'm going to step back a little bit, and actually I told Jude I was going to use him this morning. I often think of Jude when I think of this metaphor. My younger son who loves sports, he loves to play football, and he loves to play soccer. But he also loves to watch them on television he's, and, and going to games. He sees college and professional athletes on TV, and then he mimics them. He wants to be like them. 
But then we go outside and we start to play the sport and we have fun. Melissa's smiling. And then inevitably, he begins to get frustrated when he isn't successful, when he can't do what they can do on TV. He gets upset. He gets upset when he doesn't win or he doesn't do what he thought he could. And when I try to give him correction, because he already thought he could do it and he was there, he had arrived, young little nine-year-old him, he won't receive the correction. And he doesn't believe me and he won't try and he quits. But then when he does and we begin to do drills to improve his skills in his areas, it often doesn't stick with him. He gets tired of doing it. He becomes disinterested. It's too difficult. You see, what he doesn't yet understand is that when he looks at the athletes on TV, he doesn't realize the road each of them took to get there. He doesn't know. He may know, I may have told him this, but he doesn't know down deep in his bones the hard work the discipline, the fortitude each of these athletes has gone through and developed. He doesn't know the pain of each and every practice for years. The hot days, the cold weather, the early mornings, the mental fatigue in studying, the pain of pushing yourself to the limit to make small gains over and over again for long periods of time. You see, to be a great athlete, or great at anything really, you have to be willing to sacrifice your comforts and your present wants to obtain the prize that you're striving for. If you want to be able to be agile and run through the defense, if you want to shoot 75 or 80% from the free throw line, if you want to run at the front of the pack, goodness, if you want to do anything or just even be competitive, period, You have to sacrifice the comforts of the present and stay disciplined to train, to strain toward the prize of becoming the type of athlete you desire to be. This, by the way, is true in much of life. Pick any skill. Think about academics. Or in my own discipline, music. I'm always telling this to my students, and they're the same way. They see the faculty or some great musician. They see the abilities they have in music, the difficult music they're able to play, the position they hold as a teacher and a musician, and they, they think, they tend to believe, you know, it's probably easy. That was like given to them. They never stop to think about all the hours, the frustration, the persevering, the practice, the sacrificing of practicing for hours and saying no to some things, rehearsing, taking corrections, failures upon failures, the studying, as they say, the blood, sweat, and tears. They don't really know deep down in their bones the sacrificial price that is paid to become elite. We're, gonna, we're getting there, right? You tracking with me? The same goes for the giants of the Christian faith. Think about this. Paul, Peter, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Richard Baxter, Jonathan Edwards, all those big giants that we think of. As we read about them, did they have some special God-given godliness, super saint, 
just granted as a gift. They were just right, you know, all of a sudden they grew up and, and appeared a <laughs> super spiritual giant of the faith? Did they become an elite? <coughs> or were they ordinary people who had single-minded ambition and discipline, who practiced it over and over and over again and pursued the goal of, pertaining, of, of obtaining that prize, which is Christ? <coughs> So forgive me for dwelling here for so long, but I hope you're beginning to make those connections. Paul uses this metaphor to great effect. But the one thing I do, knowing the price set before him, he focuses it on, on it with single-mindedness. The one thing I do. This is what we discussed in the what section just a bit ago. Focus on the goal. Single-minded determination to obtain the prize This is not couch Christianity, church. Such focus requires much mental exertion to stay so focused. It's hard work. I know we don't like to hear that. But if you want to pursue Christ, the elite (laughs) is not easy to obtain. But one thing I do Forgetting what lies behind, Paul says, and straining forward to what lies ahead. With single-minded focus, Paul does two things. He forgets the past and focuses on what lies ahead. Now, does Paul mean, what does he mean by forgetting the past? Is it that he doesn't remember what has happened? Does he try not to let the past define him? No. What he is doing is not letting what was in the past hinder his present pursuit of Christ. And this means both his accomplishments and his failures, by the way. Both are important. Often we'll get in the rut where we dwell on how we have failed in the past, perhaps over and over again. I'll raise my hand on that one and give up on the race. I've done this. We think, I'll never get past this, so why even try? Or, well, God asks us too much. I just can't do it. And if this is you, then you're letting the past hinder your present pursuit, your present pursuit of Christ. Don't look back at that. Get back in the race. Get back in the game. Get back in the ring, in the arena. Strive. Try again and again and again. Focus. Why? Because we know that Christ has already won the day. Remember that. He has earned the prize for us. He has already told us it is already yours and it will be yours. So when you fail, don't look back. Strain toward the goal to achieve the prize. This is the same for accomplishments, by the way. I often smile when I think of this, but it's, again, letting you on in another memory of mine that has stuck with me. Going back in my life, after I graduated and received my doctoral degree, my father-in-law, he, he was there and and he said something in effect of, well, you made it. You did it. Now you can rest. You don't have to practice so much. Enjoy your well-earned achievement. <laughs> and I perhaps sometimes think, yeah, this is probably maybe good advice. I think Alyssa's probably thought that too. Is like, you need to stop practicing so much. But church, if I stopped striving after that accomplishment, which was years ago, or any such accomplishment, my progression ends there. I won't be in the game 
I won't continue performing with professionals at the elite level. You can use that accomplishment to move on to other things, to let you help you as you continue the race. But what would happen if you stopped there? What was all that work for then? It's the same way spiritually. Paul not only wants us to forget the past and not letting failures hinder us, but also, almost more so, not letting accomplishments hinder us by resting in the fact that we did something well. So you've prayed, studied, and fasted once a week for the past six months. Good job. So you showed tremendous patience beyond anything you thought possible in that situation. Well, maybe you've sacrificed so much for someone for so long. Outstanding. But don't stop there. Don't think, now I have arrived. Paul didn't. Don't think, I don't need to try so hard. No. Keep striving. Stay in the race. Paul says he strains towards the prize. The word here denotes aggressive, energetic action. That of a sprinter with aggressive and relentless intensity. He doesn't stop. Note that such a race creates great strain on the athlete. It will not often feel good. Church. It'll be hard work. Really hard work at times. But here it is, church. Pursuing Christ is not a couch Christianity. Paul also says in verse 16, only let us hold true to what we have already attained. He's saying, you've come this far in the race. Keep going. Don't stop. Don't go backwards. And don't look backwards. Don't gaze backwards. Press on toward the prize. Press into Christ. Press into knowing Him. Press into becoming like Him. Press into loving Him. Well, after all this then, all this hyping up and encouragement, when the rubber hits the road, when language is supposed to become life, when what we say is supposed to be what we do, how do we press on? Say, Andy, I want you, let's be practical here. What does it mean to run the race? What does it mean to pursue Christ? How do we get to know him better? You say to do it. How do I do it? How do I become like him? Well, church, we're not left in the dark. Let's explore some, some scriptures that help us. First, Paul says several things in his other letters, if you go and read them, in, in, after, after telling us in Ephesians that for, by grace you have been saved through faith. And, and this is not of yourselves. Even your faith isn't. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that you can't boast. He says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Flip to James, and in his letter, what does he say? Faith without works is dead. That a true inward faith will be shown by the outward good works it will inevitably produce. Okay, so one of the ways to pursue Christ and become like him is to pursue good works. Do we have examples of that? Many. 
Paul gives us some practical ways to pursue Christ, even in Philippians itself. So if we, I'm not going to have you flip back through, but you'll, you'll recognize these if you've been walking with us. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He says, stand firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened of anything by your opponents. Unity and courage. Being of the same mind, he says, have the same love. Be in full accord and of one mind. Unity in the church. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Very practical. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Practical. Let your love abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. We can reflect on how we gain that knowledge and discernment and how it reflects on loving, abounding more and more, but let's go on. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out yourself. This is the both and. For God works in you too. Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things, church, very practical, without grumbling or disputing. Hold fast to the word of life. Hold fast to this. Be glad and rejoice, he says. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers, he says up to this point. Be careful and wise. Know the truth. Hold fast to the word of life. And another great passion, or sorry, passage uh, is Romans 12. Let's, let's all turn there. And we're going to read a little bit more about what are some practical things we can do to pursue Christ. I'll turn there. Romans 12. I'm going to be kind of skipping around in here, but uh, the, whole, the whole chapter is worth you reading. It says, Therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy, offer yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Practical. Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought. Rather, think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. And then he goes, I'm not going to read this part, but Paul goes on to list gifts that one might possess in the church and encourages them to use their gifts in service to others as their spiritual act of worship, to love God and become like Christ. So using your spiritual gifts in the church helps you become Christ-like. And then really practical in verses, starting in verse 9, he says, love, so telling you to love, it must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. 
Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, church, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing so, you will keep burning coals on his head. Lastly, he says, do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's one to put on the refrigerator and say, have I practiced hospitality? Have I done this? Have I done, yeah. Is this what my life looks like? So study that on your own. But, and write some of those traits out. Sincerely love one another. Hate what is evil. Cling to good. Be unified. Be joyful. Be patient in affliction. Be faithful in prayer. That's one I struggle with, I think. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Don't grumble. Be joyful. Cling to the word of life. And on and on. These are the things we can do to pursue Christ. This is what pursuing Christ looks like in the daily grind. Have this mind among you. As we work, as we play, as we interact, we do them as if doing them unto Christ. So write them out. Dwell on them and do them. But church... We can't just go through experiences. We have to do it with the single-minded determination to grow in godliness. We go through experiences in life, but we have to let those experiences shape us by focusing on what we, what we want, the prize, right? To grow in likeness of Christ. So not, we can not only grow in Christ's likeness in our daily lifting if we actively try to grow through our experiences, but there are other disciplines, church, Okay, so there, there's these, uh, uh, we, we grow through our daily uh, experiences, right? But we also have other disciplines we can practice to grow in Christ-likeness too. And things that we should pursue if we want to see the spiritual growth that Paul has for us. If you want to practice these things and know more about them, I encourage you, one of the books I was thinking about I was, as I was going through this is it, it, for you to read and practice is the biblically-based disciplines by, uh, that Donald Whitney writes about in his book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. Some of you may have already read this. I have. I want to read it again now. Yes? And practice them. Among the disciplines, disciplines, again, athlete, think. He says, dedicated Bible intake, prayer, worship, evangelism, serving, stewardship, fasting, Silence and solitude, journaling, learning, and then how to persevere in all these disciplines to grow into godliness. That's the purpose of godliness is always part of that. This is not popular in American Christianity today. The focus is all on grace and resting in it, which don't get me wrong, is still true. We can never earn our way to God. All this striving is not to earn their way to God it is only by grace that you've been saved. And even this, faith is, not, is a gift of God. Not by works so that no one can say, look at me and what I did for God. Certainly our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, and for the glory of God alone. But we aren't supposed to stop there, church. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And Paul says in verse 15 that those who are mature spiritually should have this mind about them, this attitude, this affirmation among themselves. And those who continue to look back to be hindered by the past, those who have strayed off the path or sit on the bench, he trusts God to reveal that mindset to them. Last thing then, ask yourselves these questions. 
What does it look like for me to grow from where I am right now? Very practical. Where do I want to be next month, next year, five or 10 years? What does it say of me if I stay where I am and never grow spiritually? Am I who I claim to be? All this comes with a warning. Church, spiritual growth, as we've been examining, can be a sign of an assurance of your salvation, a very positive thing. But while only God knows your heart, if you're never growing into Christ, while it is possible your name is written in the book of life, if you don't grow into looking like him, if you can't see a marked difference, you may still be saved. And it may very well be true. Only God knows those things. But as I've heard before, you can, you, you're, you're going to lose assurance that you are if you don't grow. This is a hard truth. Those who are being saved, those who are saved, and who are being saved, sanctification, those whose hearts have been renewed to love God through Christ, will bear the fruit of knowing and loving him in their lives. Your treasure will be evident in life through your actions and life trajectory. Because what you love, you will put your time and energy into. Your heart will overflow with the affection for the thing. And it is that that your heart will protect your treasure. And this comes out in your actions, in your life trajectory. So your treasure will, will be revealed in your actions. Reflect on that. We need to strain ahead, church. As Paul says in Galatians, let us not get tired of doing good. Like an athlete disciplined to finish the race, we need to strive in the Christian life for Christ. To become like him as much as possible in this life. To know him as much as we can. It is hard work. But like anyone disciplined to sacrifice comforts for the goal of attaining what is better, the reward, the prize, knowing Christ and becoming like him in spirit and body, it is worth the sacrifice and discipline. Jesus even says this in Matthew. He promises to those who sacrifice things, great things for his sake, they will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Jesus says it's worth it. Every sacrifice he promises is worth it. So then, we strive. We strain. We sacrifice to know Christ and discipline ourselves to become like him. That is the goal. The prize is him. And so we come back to the why. You know, sometimes when I, when I go through all that hard work, I think, why am I doing this? <laughs> you always have to come back to that, folks. Why all this sacrifice, discipline, training, work, looking forward, racing to the finish line with great effort? Why? Because he's worth it. He is worthy because he is our treasure, because he is our highest good, 
because he is our greatest want. And if and when we lose sight of that, seek him. Seek him in the scriptures. Seek him in worshiping through song. Seek him in the fellowship of believers. Look at him. Stop and behold him. Ask him. Plead with him to reveal himself to you. Then, as David said, gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and then seek him in his temple. Then, church, run. Press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you're so good. We don't have to strive to attain you because Jesus has already purchased that for us. But we strive to to attain, to become like you because we love you. Because you've already changed us. You've done the thing we can't do. We can't ever make our way to you by being good enough. But Christ has done that. His perfect record has purchased for us what we cannot attain. So, Christ has become our greatest treasure because of that. So, Father, may we live lives worthy of the calling. May we strive for Christ because he's worth it. He's worth all the sacrifice. He's worth all the discipline. He's worth getting up early and staying up late. He's worth helping when we don't feel like it. He's worth all those things. If we become like him and then get and, and gain him in the end, we won't, we won't regret all the sacrifice and discipline that it took to to get to be like him. So, Father, help us to see that. Help us in this church to not grow weary of doing good, of serving one another, of striving for Christ and becoming like him because we know that our labor is not in vain. We will be like him and see him as he is because of what Christ, what you've done for us. We love you and you are holy, worthy. It's in your precious and wonderful name we pray. Amen.